baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. You are entering the news vault from KCBS Radio. Flames and the smoke. I have a tape recorder in my hand. Now, nobody would think of doing that. The newsmen were blocking the door. It worked for a couple of seconds. Bringing the sounds of history back to life. Here is your host, Stan Bunger. And thank you for the introduction, Mr. Cleary. Of course, our announcer voice is Mike Cleary, the longtime Bay Area radio personality, best known perhaps as half of Frank and Mike on KNBR. And, and since his retirement from radio broadcasting, Mike Cleary has been writing a lot of books. His most recent novel, I think he's up to five or six now, is called The Eloquence of Banter. He writes about people and places, mostly in the East Bay. You'll recognize places for sure, and you might recognize a few people if you read Mike's books. Okay, on to what's in this episode. We've dipped again into the archives of the KCBS Weekend Interview Series, In-Depth. This is an episode that aired in the summer of 1999. The guest was Governor Gray Davis. The interviewees, Ed Cavanero, the longtime news and program director at KCBS, and Mike Pulsifer, who served for many years as a news anchor at KCBS and passed away in 2010. To set the scene for this interview, Gray Davis had been elected governor the previous November. He defeated Dan Lundgren in the general election of 1998, his election ending a 16-year period during which Republicans controlled the governor's office. Davis would go on to be re-elected governor in 2002, and then things went badly very quickly. He was targeted in a recall election that led to his removal from office that was the October 2003 recall election that installed Arnold Schwarzenegger as governor. Among the issues discussed in this episode, and interesting to note how these things turned out, the retrofit of the Bay Bridge. At the time this interview was recorded, it had been 10 years since the Loma Prieta earthquake, and there still hadn't been a full decision on what to do with the damaged eastern span of the Bay Bridge. In this interview, Davis also touched on an issue that's a hot-button issue today, the ability of wealthy candidates to sidestep campaign finance laws and self-fund their campaigns. How would you rate your first eight months as governor? Uh, I, I'm very pleased with the progress we've made to date. Uh, obviously, you always make a couple of mistakes, uh, but I think we've moved the state forward, uh, particularly on education. KCBS In-Depth, a spontaneous and unrehearsed interview with one of the people making news. Our guest on KCBS In-Depth is California Governor Gray Davis. Governor Davis has a long history in California state politics. He served as then-Governor Jerry Brown's chief of staff and was his campaign manager in his second election. He was elected to the Assembly in 1982, served as state controller from 1987 through 1995 when he took office as lieutenant governor. He was elected governor last November. Governor Davis joins us today from the studios of our CBS All News sister station, KNX in Los Angeles. I'm Mike Pulsifer with Ed Cavanero. Governor, thank you for spending time with us today. Uh, you're welcome, Mike. Why do you give yourself uh, the rating you do? What, 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 is, what is your greatest accomplishment? Let's put it that way. Well, the single most important thing to me, Mike, is raising the performance of the kids in our schools. And for too many years, more than two decades, we haven't expected enough of them, ourselves, our teachers, principals, 
or parents. And I'm really pleased with the bipartisan effort we got to pass four bills that I think are major. A graduation exam, the state has never had it, now we do. Uh, financial incentives for teachers whose, whose uh, kids improve on test scores relative to the same test scores the kids took the uh, year before. Um, a peer review program holding every teacher accountable to their peers uh, for at least adequate performance. And a remarkable reading program that just this summer uh, taught 250,000 kids in a summer reading academy, six weeks in length, and separate and apart from that, 6,000 teachers who had never been taught in phonics. And starting next summer, uh, 400 would-be principals will be taught at Berkeley and UCLA in leadership, management, and business skills. Because if you find a good school, you have found a motivating principal. So when you add all that together, that's, I think, a very impressive package uh, trying to get education back on the right track. Well, Governor, uh, as you mentioned during the campaign, California was in a really deep hole education-wise compared to other states. How soon will the public see results of the latest bills that were passed? Well, I expect to see results on my watch. Um, I don't know if you recall, but I was down in San Diego in three or four months ago, and I was ad-libbing a speech to the American Legion, and I said uh, I was proud of these bills, but I said I don't want a lot of kudos because the bills are passed. The only thing that matters to me is that kids do better. And if the test scores go up, then you can thank me. And if the test scores don't go up, then I won't ask for your vote. And the moment I said it, I knew I shouldn't have. Uh, but when I walked out of the room, I only saw two press people in San Diego. I didn't think it would get a lot of notice. But it was front page in every paper up and down the state. So my first instinct was to say, no, I just meant I wouldn't ask the American Legion for their vote. But then I decided, the heck with it. I'm not going to run again for re-election unless test scores go up. So believe me, um, Improving student achievement is very high on my list of priorities. Is education in California the problem with our performance so far, mostly a big city problem, or do you think this is a statewide issue? It, uh, it is really a problem of attitude. We no longer expect the very best from every person. When I went to school back in the 50s, I went to a public school, a parochial school, and a military school, and all three schools had great teachers. I didn't want to go into politics. I didn't even want to excel. But the teachers in all three schools had bigger dreams for all of us than we had for ourselves. And they literally pushed us and stretched us into being better adults than we were going to be. Now today you flash forward and you see kids in Hunters Point in East Palo Alto that want to take algebra, physics, and chemistry, and they are talked out of it by their teachers, thereby having their dreams deflated. So I want every child and every teacher and every parent to expect the best of their kids, ask the best of them, help them, mentor them, tutor them, uh, and the more we ask of kids, the, uh, the more they'll respond to our challenge. I'm convinced of it. You, you mentioned teachers incentives. What about teachers' salaries in general? Are they still too low? They are too low, but I'm pleased that we've raised them to at least $32,000 around the state. In some cases, um, San Francisco, that may not make a great deal of difference, but in outlying areas, the salaries were in the twenty-seven dollars to $28,000 range, so at least we've got um, uh, an improvement for many of the teachers around the state. And again, if you teach in the bottom 50% of the state, namely the schools that rank in the bottom 50%, and your kids get 10% better on their test scores uh, this coming year than they did last year, the teachers, all the teachers, will get a $25,000 bonus. So we're really offering the most attractive financial incentive in America. 
we talked to a superintendent of public instruction, Delane Easton, a couple of days ago. She said too many schools still look like, as she put it, third world, and she said it's difficult to convince children that we're really concerned about their education when their schools are, again quoting her, a dump. What about, what about upgrading or, or at least rehabilitating the physical plants? Well, first of all, it took us about 25 years to allow schools to fall in the, into the state of decay they're in. Uh, but I'm very pleased that last November the good voters of this state passed a $9 billion bond issue, the purpose of which was to do just what you suggested, Mike, rehabilitate, upgrade, and improve schools, and expand uh, classrooms, build, in some cases, new schools. So we have $9 billion that should uh, go a long ways to improving the facilities in which kids operate. Governor, you just signed several new gun control measures dealing with uh, trigger locks, gun show restrictions, banning sale of cheap handguns, earlier the assault weapons ban. Does this fulfill your gun control agenda, or do you want to see further control? Uh, I believe each of these bills, Ed, in and of themselves, are sensible and reasonable. But taken together, they're the strongest gun control package in America. Uh, and I think we've struck the appropriate balance between um, the right of people to have a weapon to protect themselves, which I do believe in, and uh, sensible gun control legislation that will improve everyone's safety. Uh, so I think we pretty much uh, accomplished what I wanted to do this year. I'm very proud of these bills, and I'm very proud of the legislature for getting them to me. Now, opponents say the problem is with criminals, not with the guns. What do we do about getting the guns out of the hands of the criminals? Well, first of all, guns do kill people. Uh, and the leading cause of guns in this state, the leading cause of children deaths in this state, are these cheap handguns, which uh, unfortunately killed 650 kids last year. As you know, Ed, many of these handguns go off by accident. They're dropped and they go off. They fire without anybody uh, pressing the trigger. They're just not made properly. Uh, that will not be the case any longer because, uh, because of Senator Polanco's bill, SB 15, starting in January. Uh, these, these Saturday night specials will have to pass two tests to be made legal. They have to fire at least uh, 500 rounds without uh, uh, misfiring, and they have to be dropped from a distance of three feet six times without going off accidentally. If they can pass those two tests, which are modest safety standards, then they will be allowed. But if they can't, they will be banned. Secondly, the um, child safety, the, the safeguard, uh, child safe, safety lock legislation will again save lives. Um, it's a lot easier to uh, child-proof a weapon than to bulletproof a child. And there have been many examples of uh, people accidentally discharging a weapon uh, and killing a child. So will these solve the problems of crime? No. But believe me, they will save lives. Uh, uh, coming up uh, more on specific gun issues, but I think this is a point where these kind of blend. There's a perception these days that the schools are dangerous places, full of guns. Uh, combining, you know, the education and the gun control. Statistics say otherwise. What would you say to parents and children about that? Uh, the, I believe uh, schools are among the safest places a child can be, but I fully understand that parents are very apprehensive, particularly after Columbine, uh, after the um, shootings in the uh, West Valley Jewish Community Center a few weeks ago down in Los Angeles, and I have offered in my budget $100 million, which the legislature adopted, it's available today to improve the safety of every uh, school in this state. And it requires the school to have a um, safety audit by the local police chief or sheriff. They can then apply for a whole range of things. They can get uh, 
a um, counselor, they can get an armed policeman, uh, they can get a school psychologist, they can get fencing, video cameras. There's a whole range of, of options from personnel to hardware uh, to make their school safe uh, because I believe we haven't done enough uh, to enhance school safety and to protect the safety of children uh, while they're in our hands. Our guest on KCBS In-Depth is California Governor Gray Davis with Ed Cavanero. I'm Mike Pulsifer. Now back to the issue specifically of guns. What, what other types of gun legislation would you like to see? Well, I think we've pretty much done what we ought to do this year. Uh, that's five bills I've signed now. We've got a ban on assault weapons, uh, the, the most stringent in America. We have uh, a bill that precludes people from buying more than one gun a month. Now, some people laugh at that, but the Attorney General informs me that 40% of the weapons bought in this state are bought uh, in bunches, uh, and this will preclude that from happening. And then we signed the Saturday Night Special Bill, making sure that guns come up to minimal safety standards. Signed a bill requiring every gun sold to have a, a, a child safety lock uh, with it. Uh, and signed legislation uh, tightening up regulations um, on gun shows. I think that's enough for this year. Let's, let's let uh, law enforcement digest that and enforce it, because it's one thing to pass a law. Uh, the next most important thing is for DAs, the attorney general, and city attorneys to enforce it. Governor, at the beginning of the program, you gave yourself uh, pretty high marks for your first uh, few months in office, and that's backed by the new field poll, showing you enjoy an approval rating of 61%, only 22% disapproving. That same poll, though, showed that 70% of the public disagrees with the statement you made that the job of the state legislature is to implement your vision. Would you explain that more? Do you, do you still stand by that statement? I, I, I do, because I th actually what I said was that the legislative leaders not the legislature, but the legislative leaders who happen to be of my party uh, should help implement my vision because I ran statewide and I gave people a sense of what I wanted to do and the pace at which I wanted to do it. Uh, but I live in a democracy. Obviously, not everyone agrees uh, uh, with my perception of how people should act. Whether they agree or not, however, I think we have um, already shown a good deal of progress this year in addition to all the legislation that we've talked about, the the um, education bills and the uh, gun control bills. We've signed uh, a budget on time, the first, uh, uh, only the second this decade and the third time in the last 20 years. Uh, we've provided uh, tax relief, uh, modest reserve, a substantial amount of money for the infrastructure bank to help local uh, transportation projects. So we've done a lot of good things. Whether or not we can agree on who, uh, whose vision it is we're supposed to follow. And I assume you're talking about the Democratic leadership and, and how would you describe your relationship with them right now actually quite good uh, this morning uh, Antonio Villaraigosa was with me the speaker of the assembly uh, um, when we signed all these gun control legislation I spent about uh, three hours with John Burton uh, on uh, Thursday when uh, it was either Wednesday or Thursday when we had Indian tribes up there together and he's carrying a constitutional amendment to see if we can uh, allow a reasonable form of gaming to continue in keeping with the widespread vote that uh, followed uh, November 1988 for Indian gaming. And I spent about uh, 45 minutes with him yesterday. So actually, we're getting along very well. How would you describe your, your relations with the legislature as a whole, though, with the individual members and with, and with the opposition? Well, you know, on any given day, it can change. But uh, I'm very proud of the budget that we signed this year. It had more Republican votes for that budget than any time in 30 years. Traditionally, the out party, in this case uh, the Republicans, 
only give you the bare number of votes you need for the two-thirds to pass a budget. Instead, we had 81% uh, of the Senate Republicans voted for the budget and 63% of the Assembly Republicans voted for the budget because they thought the entire package uh, warranted their vote. And I'm very proud of that. So where possible, I try and operate on a bipartisan basis. It's not always possible, but more times than not, it has been possible. Whenever we hear things like you just said, people start saying, well, maybe this uh, heralds a, a new era of cooperation and bipartisanship. Do you think that's true? Or is, is politics just by its very nature always going to be partisan? There's no getting away from the fact that every two years there's an election, and obviously the Republicans are trying to beat the Democrats, the Democrats are trying to beat the Republicans, but I really believe uh, there are many opportunities between elections where we can operate in a bipartisan fashion. People elect us to solve their problems, not to embrace rigid ideology. And frankly, Mike, I think my election was testament to the fact that people want problem solvers, not ideologues. Um, they want ways in which their schools can be safe and better, uh, traffic is reduced, crime is reduced, and the environment is improved. And those require people from both sides of the aisle working together to solve practical problems uh, that people experience every day of their lives. The issue of health care is uh, at the forefront of the state capitol right now. Your HMO proposal would allow patients to sue their HMOs only if they suffered substantial harm due to treatment that had been delayed, denied, or modified. Why the substantial harm limitation? Well, it's all a package, Ed, and probably the flagship of the package is a requirement that any patient who is dissatisfied with a physician's recommendation can go to an external review panel of doctors outside of the HMO of which he or she is a member. And that external review would consist for example, of people from the uh, University of California teaching hospitals, that external review process would make the decision whether or not the procedure a patient wants is medically necessary. If they say it's necess medically necessary, the HMO must provide it. So I believe most patients go to uh, a physician with the intent of getting cured, getting better, not of filing a lawsuit. But I do recognize that uh, the threat of a lawsuit does temper behavior of people who will not act responsibly. And so I've said, if for some reason the HMO does not implement the recommendations of the treating physician or the recommendations of the external review process, which consists of physicians, then you can sue the HMO if you experience substantial harm. In other words, if there's loss of bodily function, loss of a limb, loss of eyesight, uh, if there was a significant problem in the delay or failure to fully implement a physician's recommendation, then you should have a right to sue. So I think when you look at the whole package, which includes uh, ombudsman grading HMOs and making that information on the Internet, uh, brand new department regulating HMOs, if you look at the whole package, I think it's a reasonable package. Generally speaking, how can we assure quality in health care and, and make it affordable? Can we even do that? It's a little bit of a contradiction in terms, but I think we're doing the very best we can. Uh, I like to remind people of the competing forces at work. Many of these HMOs, except for Kaiser, are publicly traded on the uh, stock exchange. The executives are under pressure to show earnings for their shareholders. That takes dollars away from health care. On the other hand, you have physicians who take a Hippocratic oath 
to provide the best possible care to their patients. So those are two competing forces that I liken to a potential train wreck. Now, within that inherently contradictory system, which is what we have, uh, I think we've fashioned legislation that will uh, assure better care, quicker care. In the package that I have uh, sent out to the legislature, we greatly reduce the time the HMO has to uh, review your uh, your um, situation internally. They can't take longer than 30 days maximum before it goes to external review process. And if it's an emergency situation, they can't take more than 72 hours. So I, I think within the constraints we're working with, uh, within, uh, patients will get better, more responsive care. Do you think some type of HMO legislation is going to emerge from the legislature this year? There's no doubt in my mind. I am convinced this, the external review process will be adopted, put into law. That's a major step forward in this state. It means if Ed or Mike doesn't like what the physician at their HMO uh, says relative to some treatment or uh, um, procedure that you think is appropriate, and the um, external review process agrees with you, uh, you get it no matter how much it costs. The HMO has to foot, foot the bill. That has never been the, the law in the state, and it's going to be the law, and I think it's much more consumer-friendly. California Governor Gray Davis is our guest today on KCBS In-Depth. I'm Mike Pulsifer with Ed Cavanero. Characterize forest relations today with mm. Mexico. I think they're vastly improved. I cannot tell you... Um, how proud I was that President Zedillo uh, returned my early visit to Mexico. You'll recall I went down there after being in office tw only 28 days. He came back in May for three days. He didn't go to any other state. He just came to California. Matter of fact, we got President Clinton on the phone while, um, while he was here. And I think that trip has gone a long ways to having us recognize that uh, we are neighbors uh, with Mexico. They're an important uh, uh, people. Many of their uh, sons and daughters uh, are now citizens of California. We benefit enormously from their trade, uh, from the exchange of ideas. Uh, are there problems with the relationship? Certainly. There's illegal immigration, which is a problem. There's illegal drug trafficking, which is a problem. But you never solve those problems unless you first establish a context of mutual respect, and I'm convinced we've done that. I think the president really enjoyed himself here. He was a big hit, President Cedillo, uh, and I certainly enjoyed having him. Governor, as you know, transportation is a big issue in the Bay Area, different issues. Uh, where do we stand with the Bay Bridge retrofit? Well, I'm determined to go ahead and uh, repair that bridge to make sure that people who use it uh, use what is the safest possible a bridge we can make. Uh, I have talked to everyone from uh, Mayor Brown uh, from San Francisco, Mayor Brown from Oakland, uh, Senator Feinstein, and, and I'm certainly open to other suggestions which range from uh, a different kind of retrofit to a parallel bridge. Uh, but my first obligation as governor is to ensure the $50 million we've already spent planning the retrofit um, is implemented in a timely fashion so the existing bridge is safe uh, to the extent the engineers can make it so because God forbid anything happened and we're still debating on what happens to the bridge. Now, if we want to make improvements beyond that, I'm open to that. We obviously have to figure out a way to do that in a cost-effective manner. Speaking of cost, do we need high-speed rail between Northern and Southern California? I think in the long run we do. 
Uh, but in the short run, I believe that the higher priority is to uh, reduce congestion in crowded uh, commuter corridors. And that's why in my budget I proposed uh, several new trains uh, from uh, uh, Oakland to San Francisco, to um, San Jose, rather, from Sacramento to Oakland, uh, the Altamura Express that comes from the northern Central Valley uh, down to Oakland and down to San Jose, uh, more ferries uh, to increase traffic across the bay, because while high-speed rail will connect the state and, and provide an alternative for people who want to get, say, from San Diego to San Francisco, most daily commutes uh, are a horrendous, uh, you know, two, two-and-a-half-hour struggle, and to the extent that I can reduce those commute times, I think I provide a more immediate service. It seems as though people talk more and more about rail rather than road. Do you, do you think that is the way to go? Well, we have to do both, but the, uh, as you know, Michael, the acquiring the right-of-way is extraordinarily expensive. Uh, down in Los Angeles, the last major freeway built in Los Angeles, it took almost 30 years, was the Century Freeway, uh, where the uh, right-of-way, it cost basically a uh, billion dollars a mile. One billion dollars a mile, it goes 17 miles. So. If you have you already have the right of way for rail, and what you're doing is increasing the quality of the rail so they can take faster trains, it's much more economical than it is to um, buy houses, condemn property, and acquire new right of way for more freeway. It also reduces pollution and probably speeds the commute, right? It does both of that. Governor, as we're ending the the uh, end of the summer, uh, we see more and more lobbyists, special interest money flowing into the capital. We're reading about legislators hosting $500 and $1,000 breakfasts, lunches, dinners. They're all aimed at lobbyists, and there's a perception that the money buys special treatment. Is this something you're concerned about? I am concerned about it, and I hope that legislators, and I have reason to believe this is the case, um, simply consider all competing points of view before they make their decision. I look at every legislation, uh, that, uh, every piece of legislation that gets to my desk, even bills that uh, have no dissenting votes, I've occasionally vetoed uh, because I find fault with it. Not always because uh, it was unduly influenced by a particular interest group, but just because uh, I have a philosophical disagreement. So I do my best uh, at the end of the process to make sure that uh, what gets by me is as good a piece of work as I can, uh, as I can make it be. But I, but I think that most of the legislators in Sacramento are honest, decent people and uh, can frankly accept uh, contributions from people and still vote against them. Uh, that's the way you have to be if you're going to accept contributions. Otherwise, you, sh you should find some other line of work. You yourself have raised a record $6 million since taking office. And obviously, campaigns are more and more expensive, especially in this state, more and more. Uh, but the question arises, why do you need to raise so much money this far from a reelection campaign? Well, quite candidly, uh, Ed, you'll recall the race of 98. Uh, I had to run against uh, Al Checky, who spent somewhere between 38 and $42 million in a primary, which was a record for, for a race for governor primary in general in America. Then uh, Jane Harmon got in and spent $18 million of her own money. Uh, I was able to scrape together about $8.5 million. I would not have been able to do that if a judge hadn't struck down a limitation uh, limiting us to $1,000 um, uh, per contribution, which sounds like a lot of money, but when you're trying to raise $35 million, uh, you've got to 
find 35,000 people if they give you $1,000, and that's hard to do. Um, so the likelihood is that this law will be reinstated by next March, which has the effect also of not allowing you to raise any money until 12 months before your election. The bottom line is uh, winning the election last year was like drawing to an inside straight. I had to hope that the, our good Senator Dianne Feinstein didn't run. Happily, she didn't. I had to hope a judge struck down this campaign uh, uh, limitation law. He did. Uh, and I had to hope that uh, Al Checky didn't run the best possible campaign. Happily, he didn't, and I won. But um, I just want to be in a little better shape, and <laughs> assuming I run again uh, four years from now. And I have to get a lot of this done before uh, this campaign reform law comes back into effect precluding anyone running for office in 2002 from raising any money until 12 months before their election. Should there be caps, in your opinion, on, on how much can be spent on campaigns for various offices at the state level? I think uh, limitations on how much can be spent and how much uh, individual contributions can be make sense. But again, I believe uh, the lower those limits are, the greater the invitation to a Silicon Valley billionaire to say, well, I think I'll be governor or president. I'm just going to throw my hat in the ring. And believe me, Mike, if you give me $42 million and you and I are running for governor, you're going to lose. Uh, I was just fortunate that that money wasn't spent as well as it could have been. Generally, the person who spends the most money has an awful good chance of winning. That Maybe that shouldn't be, uh, but if you look at the history of races in California, generally the person uh, with the greater resources has a greater chance to win. You mentioned running for re-election twice with a word similar or a phrase similar to if both times. Can you envision any reason why you wouldn't run for a second term? Well, not today, but that is a long ways off. And believe me, I am grateful for every day in this job. It's been a lifelong journey. As your introduction indicated, uh, I've devoted almost my entire life to public service, starting with uh, uh, my service as a captain in the Vietnam War in the late 60s and uh, on up through the 70s, 80s, and 90s in various positions in Sacramento. I'm greatly honored to be here. And as my wife told me one day when I was complaining about everyone uh, lobbying me for this view, uh, for their views on a given issue, she said, snap out of it. You spent your whole life trying to get this job. Now just enjoy every moment. Well, as we wrap this up, uh, what is your next big priority? Well, my next big priority is to make sure we can get solid HMO reform legislation out of the legislature in the remaining two weeks. And then, as you know, the legislature goes home and leaves about 1,200 bills, which I have to go through each one of them, and that will, uh, that will occupy my time till about the middle of October. Uh, but if we can get uh, good HMO legislation passed, I will consider this a very successful first year. Governor, thank you for being with us. We are out of time. Our thank guest you, on KCBS In-Depth has been California Governor Gray Davis. He joined us today from the studios of our CBS All News sister station, KNX Los Angeles. With Ed Cavanero, I'm Mike Pulsifer, KCBS All News 74. You have been listening to KCBS In-Depth, a news discussion series broadcast every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. and 8.30 p.m. KCBS In-Depth is produced by Cheryl Rain. Remember to follow the News Vault from KCBS Radio on social media. On Facebook, we're at News Vault Podcast. On Twitter, find us at News Vault SF. On Instagram, we're at News Vault. Until our next episode, you are leaving the News Vault from KCBS Radio. Hey, Rob.
Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.